Sound Minds Radio, getting you behind the research and ideas in contemporary life. This episode produced by Michael Schubert. Sound Minds Radio, part of the Community Radio Network. Soundminds.com.au Welcome to the Sound Minds 5-Minute Research Pitch 2017 Finals Presentations. The 5-Minute Research Pitch is a competition. It's for academics to present their research in 5 minutes. That's it. They can use 3 slides and there are no more rules. Researchers from 7 universities competed this year within their university in two categories, Science and Health and Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences. The winner in each category was promoted to head off to the finals. This year the competition was hosted by Central Queensland University because one of their researchers, Dr Melanie Heyman, was the 2016 overall winner. You can hear more from Melanie in the Sound Minds episode, Fit for Two, where she discusses her innovative and entrepreneurial research about fitness during pregnancy. The 2017 competition was held at the Central Queensland University campus in Melbourne, hosting the competitors from seven universities, Central Queensland, the Australian Catholic Uni, Charles Sturt, Southern Cross, Southern Queensland, Tasmania and Victoria University. Now it takes more than knowledge about your research, it takes preparation and precision. You're disqualified at five minutes, it's over and if the slides don't work, you're on your own. Look, there's even coaches within the universities now helping their fellow academics prepare for this event. This is big. To some in the academic world, outside of publishing and taking the knowledge about our world forward, communicating is essential. Communicating to the public, communicating to potential funding bodies, communicating is essential. In this episode, there are two academics who research sport. One from the Health Sciences Group, and one from the Social Sciences Group. We'll hear from Dr. Paul Larkin from Victoria University, who is interested in how talent is identified in early career sports people, and I mean early, as young as six. And Dr. Fiona McLaughlin, also from Victoria University, looking at the social science implications of the silent game, netball. So to today's episode. Talented sports people need to be spotted, identified, supported, trained and educated. So how is this achieved? In another Sound Minds episode called Coach the Coaches, Dr Scott Talpy identified the need to coach the coaches to create better players and prevent injuries. In this five minute research pitch talk, Dr Paul Larkin considers the methods of spotting and recruitment And given the money invested at the leading edge of sport, you'd think it would be methodical that talent scouts would have it down, dialed in, able to be examined, scrutinised, that they were using best practice, not leaving it to chance or personal bias or even serendipity. Well, how about Paul tells the story of his research in his talk entitled Right Place, Right Time, With the Right Eye Watching. 
In sports, talent identification is imperative for identifying the next superstar. The process of talent identification is recognising current athletes or youth athletes who have the ability of making best sports or have the ability to become the next senior elite athletes. However, this process is quite a taxing and time-consuming one. It's quite cost-effective, sorry, it's quite costly for both the clubs involved who are identifying some athletes as young as six years old, but also in terms of the athletes themselves. The decisions that are made on them within this pathway can influence both their life directions but also career, their careers within those sports. From a research perspective, what we actually do now is look at things and go, what attributes do the athletes have that are in these programs? And we're retrospectively looking at and identifying the athletes that have made these um, selections, both anthropometric, decision-making, and psychological attributes. So we're identifying and looking back from the players that have been selected to the players then that aren't selected. And from a research, that's how we're doing things at the moment. But what we know is that in terms of talent identification, that process is not always possible and it's maybe a little bit more subjective. Good question, team. Okay, it's time for the easiest part of any coach's job, the cut. And while I wasn't able to cut everyone I wanted to, I have cut a lot of you. Wendell is cut, Rudy is cut, Jamie, you're gone. Steven, I like your hustle. That's why it was so hard to cut you. Congratulations, <laughs> the rest of you made the team. Except you, you and you. So while this is quite an extreme example, it is generally what happens out in the sporting world, where coaches are making subjective decisions on who or what players should be selected to make certain teams and progress through the development pathways. From a research perspective, then, as I'm proposing and saying, well, instead of looking at this retrospectively, it's starting to consider what is or how are these coaches and scouts making the decisions about who should actually progress in the field. So this is more understanding how they are making their subjective decisions, what information they're providing. So speaking to these coaches and scouts out there about what are they actually doing in terms of identifying the athletes that are around. So for example, here we've done some research with AFL recruiters and national soccer scouts. We're talking about, well, what helps them make the decisions? So at the moment in the AFL, they're all draft, draft time is coming up and all the players attend the draft combine where it's assessing a lot of the physiological makeup of them. Talking to the recruiters though, they're saying, this only makes up maybe 1% of their decision. And it's not something that will actually make or break an athlete making it into the AFL pathway. So from a research perspective, why are we investing so much time and effort into assessing these attributes and trying to develop tests to assess these when it's maybe something the recruiters aren't considering themselves? A soccer coach down the bottom left is saying they're looking for players to be effective. Well, what does that actually mean? So from researchers, we need to consider what is an effective player? How can we actually assess that? An example as well is that talent identification process happens in a really short space of time. So on the top right there, we've got a soccer coach saying they've watched a centre-back play, He's, they've watched them for all of two minutes, the player's made two passes and they won't watch them again. So how can we streamline the actual process so that these players are actually getting a chance? So that in that process they've actually been able to perform to their best of their ability and we're making decisions on players' actual attributes, not just watching <coughs> a very small space of time where they're playing. But also it's looking as well at some of the other players, like one of the AFL recruiters saying, you don't have to be the best athlete. It doesn't have to have the best technical skills, but if they've got, or sorry, if they've got the best technical skills, but they're not mentally there, 
how do we actually understand, well, what are they looking for in terms of the mentality of the players and understanding that. So in terms of the research we're proposing, it's going, well, instead of looking at it from the athlete perspective and looking at it all retrospectively, is maybe start looking at it from the recruiter's perspective. So understanding what the recruiters are looking for, understanding then, are we able as researchers to develop measures that are actually important to the talent identification process and would be valued by these recruiters? By doing this, it has the potential to actually provide greater clarity for the youth coaches and the scouts who are making these decisions, the parents who are investing a lot of time in their child to attend sports, but also the players as well in, in terms of their career and life progressions. With the overall aim of this research to understand, well, making sure talent identification is not being in the right place at the right time with the right eye watching. Dr. Fionn McLaughlin started exploring the historical and social perspectives of an Australian sport that has one of the highest participation rates across the country, netball. And what she found was not much. Given the dominance of this sport in all parts of Australia, there was little record of its existence. Compared to the minutiae of details, records and memorabilia from other notable Australian sports. Her talk is entitled giving voice to the silent game. Sports fans, feminists, innocent bystanders, <laughs> a social change is here. Soccer, cricket, footy. Australian girls can now play the sports they love at the highest level. It is, they say, the end of male domination in sport. So, throw your hammers down, sisters. The grass ceiling has been smashed. <laughs> Have we forgotten about netball? That really popular girly girls game where you're forbidden to run with the ball. <laughs> the game that has been controlled by females for females since the 1890s. The first sport in Australia to offer women halfway decent wages and family-friendly playing contracts. What on earth does netball have to do with smashing the patriarchy? Well, that's the very question that I've been researching. As a socio-cultural researcher working in the area of gender and sport, my job is to ask pesky questions about equality and social change. So against the backdrop of the so-called new era in women's sport, I've been asking questions about netball. Its history, its politics, its future, and its relation to gender norms in Australia. After undertaking a literature review, I discovered that the sociocultural significance of netball had largely been ignored by sociologists, gender researchers, but particularly by historians. So in order to confront this silence, my colleague Rob Hiss and I partnered with Netball Victoria to design a project that aimed to understand and preserve this important history. So the project we designed had two parts. The first is an archival project, and this basically involves us going through boxes and boxes of what looks like old junk to the untrained eye, but is actually the remnants 
of Netball Victoria's past. This is really slow, really tedious work, but it's super important because otherwise, without these proper processes and techniques, these historically rich items lost forever. The second part of our project is an oral history, and we're operating on a very tiny budget for this project. So we developed an innovative volunteer-based model to interview 30 life members of Netball Victoria. So what we did was we got interested members of the Netball community to come to VU for a two-day training workshop. We prepared them in uh, interviewing techniques, and then they went out and interviewed the life members themselves. And this proved to be a really successful model. Through these interviews, we've gathered vital information about Netball Victoria's past, and the experiences of elite netballers from the last 50 or so years. For me, this has provided a really great foundation for my research on gender, netball, and social change. However, what we've been able to gather is quite limited. So these uh, interviews and artifacts do not take into account the breadth and diversity of ordinary netballers the everyday girls and women who have built and sustained this unique and important cultural practice. So, my goal, if I can secure enough money, <laughs> is to expand the oral history and archive project and roll this out to netball communities across Victoria initially and then hopefully across Australia as well, and also to then build an interactive digital platform through which the history of netball is not only preserved and celebrated by the broader public, but can also be critiqued and debated by sociologists, historians, and gender researchers. Ultimately, this research will allow us to ensure that the silent game its heroines and its socio-cultural significance will not be forgotten. You've been listening to another episode from Sound Minds Radio, produced for the Community Radio Network. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or visit our website, soundminds.com.au.